Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. Great to see you. If you're a guest with us, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation, very last book of the Bible, so it should be easy to find. Chapter 21, one of the the next to the last chapter of that book. We're in the home stretch, folks. We are almost done uh, with a series that we started back in January called Unveiled Glory. We've been unpacking verse by verse this book that John writes as a political prisoner exiled on Patmos, gaining a vision of Jesus and all of his unveiled glory to encourage a group of churches that were undergoing crisis and, and persecution. And so now we're coming to sort of that concluding drama. We've been through a lot together, haven't we? We've seen lots of scary visions, and some of that was confusing. We've sought to try to unpack some of that. Mostly, I think we've been challenged with some really hard truth, especially for people like us who would call ourselves Christians living in the middle of an environment of relative ease, honestly. I mean, we have air-conditioned buildings and soft, cushy seats, and we have our own institutions where we train our pastors. We got money. We have all kinds of resources and privilege that our brothers and sisters in the first century didn't have. And so we look at the things they're challenged to do and it's, it's hit us pretty hard. But in these last couple of chapters, we got about four weeks left, including today. And we're going to be looking at this fact, how all of these things that we're being challenged to do are worth it. They're worth it because of the future that's in front of us. And so we begin with kind of a summary statement, these first eight verses of chapter 21 of that future. And, and I, I'll tell you, the, 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 the closer we get to the end of this book and the deeper we explore this idea of the future that God has in front of us, the more beautiful it becomes. Danny Aiken, who started out in relation to me as a mentor and one of my professors, uh, who is now a dear friend and, and president of Southeastern Seminary, where I'm honored to teach, has actually one of his commentaries I'm commending to you, even though I think he's wrong in in the way that he approaches some of the the issues in Revelation. And nonetheless, faithful brother in Jesus, I love him. His commentary is out there for your consumption so you can decide on certain points of minutia, whether he's right or whether your pastor's right. Uh, He actually makes a really astute observation uh, around this section of Revelation. He compares it to the first two chapters of the Bible. He says, in the first two chapters, chapters of the Bible, the devil is not there. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, the devil is not there. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? Growing up in a world where we've never known anything else, but having the, just the unavoidable experience of being touched by evil, the, the unavoidable experience of encountering evil, personified often in demonic influence. But, but Scripture tells us here that world is coming. And you know what? Every single human being on the planet hopes that's true. They might not be Christian. They might not follow it. But they, they all hope this is true. Dallas Willard, the late philosopher, says that, that human beings think about the future as naturally as we breathe. 
regardless of ideology or religious conviction, uh, every single funeral, including the one that I was honored to preach yesterday for a couple, a married couple who've been married years and decades even, died within three days of each other, and we're, we're ministering to that grieving family, and all of us are thinking about where they are at this moment and where all of us who have been left behind are ready to go. That, that's what was on everybody's mind yesterday. We intuitively think about this thing, and we hope it's true. And again, across the ideological conviction, across that whole spectrum, Woody Allen, the late comedian, was actually an atheist. And he said, you know, principally, I don't believe in an afterlife, but I'm packing a change of underwear just in case. Like, everybody thinks about this. Everybody has questions about this. Everybody hopes they're right in terms of the picture in their own mind that they're drawing of, of this future. And we all, of course, have some picture of what we think it's going to be like. Well, today, John gives us a summary statement to answer a lot of those questions definitively. And so we're going to get five descriptions of the future that God has prepared for those that follow him. Let's go ahead and dive in, beginning with this point. It is a new future. Everything about this is new. Everything that's old, even the things that we experience now in this world, go away. Let's look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then let's fast forward for a moment. I'll come back to verse 3. Let's look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So in summary, there is a new Jerusalem coming. The former Jerusalem is passing away. Verse 1, verse 4. And those kind of form the brackets in this entire section of four verses. And I'm just going to warn you in advance. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this point. It informs all of the others. It sets up the big picture for everything else we're going to talk about today. So we're going to do a little deep dive here for just a moment. Because this is one of the repeated patterns of the New Testament. If you're familiar enough with your Bible, you're going to recognize this. There's a pattern in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation of old becoming new. Jesus speaks about old wineskins and new wineskins. Paul speaks about the old body. It's the one that I'm inhabiting now, this overweight one that's got too much sugar in its blood. And a new resurrection body that's coming. And what's true of my body and your body, John is going to remind us here, is also true of the whole created order. The old is going to pass. Something new is coming. And I think this is where this truth is closely connected with, with crisis, with trouble, with, with tribulation. So, so I want us to look at this from both angles just to make sure that the message is clear because it's so encouraging. Let's, let's start with our bodies. All right, And to do that, we've got to go back to 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, Paul says this of our physical body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. Notice the agricultural metaphor there, like dropping a seed in the ground. It dies and it comes back to life. Jesus said that, didn't he? A seed has to go into the ground and die. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, by that, he doesn't mean that we're not going to have flesh 
or they're not, we're, we're not going to somehow or another be physical beings. He doesn't mean that we're a bunch of Casper the Ghost floating around on a cloud. We know this because we're told later on that there will be a resurrection and glorification of our physical bodies. And we know this just by looking at the account of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't just appear to have been raised from the dead. He didn't just appear as some kind of spirit. He rose bodily from the dead in a glorified body. So on the one hand, first thing he does when he shows up for his disciples and they're cooking fish around a fire, presumably, and he goes, hey, I haven't had anything to eat in like, I don't know, three days. So he gets something to eat. They touched him. He touched them. And then somehow he's able to pass through walls, appear, disappear. So it's not the kind of body that we have now necessarily, but it is nonetheless a physical body. And in verse 36, Paul compares that to a seed sown in the ground. It dies and then it is raised up to something more glorious than that which existed before. And what's true of the body is true of creation. Look at this passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, we are waiting for and hastening in other words, we can't get there fast enough. The coming of the day of God, <clears throat> because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So again, just like a seed has to go in the ground and die before new life comes, the old Jerusalem has to be dispensed with so that a new one can one day come. Our bodies must pass and be buried for new life to come. And so what John is describing in Revelation 21 is what Peter and Paul were also describing with relationship to every other level of creation from the seeds themselves to our new bodies. The Old has to go in order for the new to come. That's what we're saying here. Creation must pass away. And the word picture there in the original language is of something slowly but certainly decaying. For the new to come, the old has to go. You've, you've heard that old saying, nobody ever saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Right? Well, what, that's true. We, most of us would have no problem believing that. Most of us would have no issue understanding that we're going to leave our money behind. We're going to leave our homes behind. We're going to leave our automobiles behind. We, we're gonna, but, but every other thing, even that we don't think about, also gets left behind. Everything has to go. You can't just add to this promise you can't just add eternity to the, even the good things that you enjoy in this life. If you want that promise, you've got to turn loose of absolutely everything else. Because if it comes to you, it will replace everything else. This is John's point here. Okay? Now, why is it necessary for us to understand that? Well, partly because of this cryptic statement, and the sea was no more. How many of you have questions about that? Anybody? Like, what does that mean? Like, first time I read that, I was like eight, nine. And can I just be honest with you? This was my first reaction. But God, I love to fish. Is there not going to be any fishing in heaven? I mean, you got to have water to fish. Yeah. So, so what does this mean? What does this mean? What's he talking about here? Well, in many places in the Bible, actually, including here in Revelation, the writers use the metaphor of the sea or the waters to describe the origins of chaos and the origin of evil. Let me just really quickly here give you three examples of that. The first one is in the second verse 
of Scripture. Genesis 1-2 says the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Sounds pretty chaotic, right? God speaks into that. We see very quickly later in the narrative, and he brings order to the chaos. But at this moment, you see chaos, and then you see the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Fast forward to Revelation 13.1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Daniel chapter 7, verse 3. And four great beasts came out of the sea. What, what are they doing with this metaphor? Right? So one of the great mysteries of Christian faith, specifically, it's one that no theologian has given any real satisfactory answer to. It has to do with the origin of evil. And it goes something like this. If God is good, and Scripture says that he is, if there's no evil in him and no malicious intent in him, and Scripture says that that's true as well, if God doesn't tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted, and James is pretty clear about that, and if furthermore, God created everything good and righteous and perfect, and Scripture in the first two chapters of Genesis makes that abundantly clear. And if there, if, if, so if evil didn't come from God, where did it come from? If even Satan himself was created good, and Scripture says he was, then that first little sliver of rebellion that entered his mind, that led to his overthrow out of heaven onto the earth, where, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? And ultimately, we don't know. And so the biblical writers would often use the metaphor of the sea as speaking, because again, in the ancient world, there was a lot of mystery around it. Still is a lot of mystery around the sea, right? But back then, before GPS, right, before all these other, you know, kind of avenues of technology for us to be able to map out the oceans themselves, a lot of mystery. And so they would use the sea as a metaphor for that kind of, that kind of mystery. Where does evil come from? We don't know. And so we'll speak of the origin of evil as the sea. Now, I want you to understand that as you read this verse again. There was no more sea. Let that settle in, okay? The new world that God will eventually bring to us will have no more sea. What, what that means is in the future there is coming a world that not only will have a complete and total absence of all sin and evil and strife and trouble, but will have the complete absence of any entry point for evil. It will never be allowed. Like you, you and I are headed toward a future, if we belong to Jesus, where we will never be touched by evil again. From the inside, from the outside. Now, how does that connect with this idea of, of, of everything's got to be replaced? Well, in order for that future to come, everything tainted by evil must pass away. That includes your flesh and mine. So let's make this real personal. When crisis comes, what's the first thing you grab onto? And don't be all hyper-spiritual and tell me Jesus. All right, let's be real here. What's the first thing you grab? I, I guess it would depend on the crisis, wouldn't it? Because depending on the level, like if it's a home invader, you probably grab your gun if you have one. If it's uh, one of your kids, you, you go grab the phone. You call 911. You know, if they're sick, if they're injured, any number of things could happen. Like if, if, you, if you know there's, there's a hurricane coming, we don't have too much issue with that here in the mountains, but where I used to live, 
Maryland, every once in a while, a Cat 3 would hit the, the Chesapeake Bay, and we'd be encouraged to maybe either batten down the hatches or possibly even, you know, go west a little bit. What am I grabbing out of the house that I want to save? What are the things most precious to you in this life? Eventually, whatever that thing is, is going to have to pass if the new is going to come. And that's the hard part of this reality. Because some of you are like, wait a minute. You mean my spouse? Yes. Yeah. And see, that's, that's, not a, that's not a diminishing of marriage. Not a woman on this planet I love more than the one sitting right over there. But at one point, if by God's grace we stay faithful to each other and the covenant that we entered, eventually our marriage will terminate because one of us is going to die. And our Mormon friends make great neighbors, but they are dead and eternally wrong on this point. Marriage is not eternal. It terminates upon death. Why is that? Because believe it or not, Amy and I have sin in our marriage. Wow, it got quiet. It don't look at me like you don't have sin in yours. I, I just, I'm going to be doing another funeral here in a couple of weeks for a beloved woman who died, and I'm sitting talking with the man, and I said, tell me, tell me what you want remembered most about your wife. And he teared up. And in the same breath, he said, man, she was a good woman, and I wanted to choke her many times. <laughs> right? He never did it, never. Yeah, you, know, you act on we're in another category, right? But he thought about it, and I said, I bet she probably thought the same about you. He said, oh, yeah, 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 he did. There, there, all, see, all that's got to get cleaned up. That's got to get purged. That's got to get back. There, there's no place for that in God's kingdom. None. Furthermore, marriage is not the end. Marriage is the shadow. Marriage is the thing that points to the ultimate thing. There is an ultimate marriage between Jesus and his church. Once we get to that relationship, if we truly follow Jesus, we're not going to want the old one anymore. There's not going to be a need for it any longer. So yeah, your spouse. Now wait a minute, Pastor. What, what, what about my children? A lot of new parents in, in our church family right now. Yeah. Doesn't mean you don't love your kids. Doesn't mean you wouldn't die for your kids. Doesn't mean you wouldn't kill for your kids. Doesn't mean you wouldn't kill your kids. Right? It, what does that mean? It, it means that the relationship is for something larger, okay, than whatever you think parenthood might be. If this notion of giving them up and giving that relationship up at some point disturbs you. Psalm 127 says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And because we got a lot of new parents, we're doing a series this fall, about eight weeks, simply entitled Release the Arrows. What is God's purpose for parenting? You know, some of you, you're, you know, that kid's still pooping and throwing up on you. Some of you, you've gotten to the teenage years and you're wondering, what in the world am I going to do? And wherever you are along that trajectory, we're going to be talking about that because God has a plan for parents but that parent-child relationship, it, it, it's lifelong, but not eternal. Not eternal. Every single thing in this life will eventually pass away, and we can face that knowing that an infinitely better future is coming. It's why I could stand at the graveside yesterday of a mother 
and a father and with a straight face tell that family we do not grieve as those who have no hope. It's different. Why? Because something infinitely better is coming. That's what John is, is telling us here. It's a new, all new future. Secondly, it's a personal future. Verse 3 says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, do I even have to expound on this? If that becomes realized, is it really hard to let go of all the other things in your life in order to get that? I think this is the biggest thing we miss about the end of the age. The, the, the greatest thing about this new heaven and new earth is not the new bodies. It's not being reunited with our loved ones. It's the perfect and unimpeded eternal presence of God with us. December 2020, we observed our first Christmas without my mother. And we did it in a really difficult world where we were trying to protect, at that point, my 75-year-old father. So that was, y'all remember December 2020? That was just a stinky Christmas. Y'all, can I get a witness? That was awful, right? And so we, we're, but we, we did what we could. God actually gave us one day. I'm from South Carolina, so don't hate on me. We actually had one day where it got up in the high 60s and we all met outdoors under a picnic shelter and it was, it was just great. Um, and so I, I can remember we were reminiscing during that time about past Christmases. And I started thinking, when I was a kid, the thing I looked forward to the most, well, it's what any kid looks forward to, is the presents, right? You run down, you get up. I, and of course, it's all come full circle because my kids, thankfully, they're all teenagers now, so they, they sleep on Christmas Day, right? But when they were younger, what did they do? What time, what time they get up, all right? Who do you think is going to win the pot if we talk about who had, who's had to get up earliest? Three o'clock in the morning, right here. There. Can we go downstairs? Can we see what we got? And I call my father, and he goes, this sounds so familiar. Right? Because when you're young, that's what you want. You want to tear into the presence you want. You want the presence. But then you, then you get older, and then you get married. And then, well, the presence change. Right? No more Millennium Falcon for Joel. He's 28 now. He doesn't need that stuff anymore, right? He's got to grow up. But there eventually came a time when the presence didn't matter anymore. I remember the moment, actually. I was in my early 30s, and Amy and I were talking. We were living in Maryland at the time, and, and there was just a lot of angst on both sides of the family. Families getting bigger, younger people having kids, there's lots of kids everywhere. We go to my aunt's house, and I don't even know who they are anymore. And, and, and so we, we can't buy presents for everybody. We're all going to go broke. And, and so should we draw names? Should we draw straws? Should we, what, how are we going to do that? And what's the limit? Is it $10? Is it $15? And I remember that moment when I finally said, I, I don't care. You remember that? I think my kids overheard me and said, we care, but... But like, I don't, like, as you get older, as you mature, and all of a sudden, and especially those last few years before mama died, it was like, who gives a crap about presents? What do you want? You want the presence of your family, don't you? 
You, you want the presence of, of your loved ones. This is what John is telling us is going to be the eternal state of all of us before the throne of God, just spending time with him. And that's interesting because God throughout the scriptures is, is perceived by his people as dwelling in, in various kinds of structures. The whole time, as we look back on those Old Testament narratives, we discover that he was actually with his people wherever they went, wasn't he? That presence in the end is finally going to be experienced in all of his glory. What was tried in Eden and failed because of Adam's sin, what was visualized in tabernacle and temple, finally is going to materialize in this new cosmos. So whatever you're going through right now, God is with you now. Like you don't have to wait for that moment to come. He's with you now. And when that future arrives, you will see just how present he was. And then you will relish in his presence forever. You're not going to notice really anybody else. I mean, I, I don't know how all that's going to work out. I don't know what the ratio is going to be. I have no idea about spending time with loved ones and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I just, I know this. I know my loved ones who have gone on, they, they cannot possibly be thinking about me. Think about whose presence they're in. How on earth could you think of anything else when you're in the presence of that kind of glory? That's the level of intimacy, that personal future. So it's a new future, it's a personal future. And because we're in the presence of this holy God and we are restored, it is also a painless future. I want you to think about that for a minute, just in the stark reality of everything our culture has been through and our world really in the last couple of years, all this violence that is kind of just leaving us in, in all kinds of bloodshed. All of, we, think, we think about people in Texas burying their children this week, and, and we know that more, maybe it's not another shooting, but there's something else coming. As long as this world continues to exist, there will continue to be that kind of chaos. There will continue to, to be that kind of pandemonium and, and, and lack of peace and sickness and all kinds of other things. Think about in, that in this world as you read these words about the next one. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For, here's why, the former things have passed away. This is John's way of saying all that stuff you want to hang on to, it's worth it to let it go. It's worth it. Because in this world, even with those good things, we cry because there's pain. There's sorrow. There's conflict. There's sickness. There's death. Those, those things exist because sin has infected all of us. It's even infiltrated our relationships with each other. It's infiltrated the social contracts by, by which we seek to live. There's not a government on the planet that has not, from its inception, been affected by this. And from the societal level all the way down to the level of the very soul, this is our reality that there would be no tears if it weren't for death, and there wouldn't be any death if it weren't for sin. So no more sea means no more tears. When God removes the sin from my life, your life, and from the world, and then he removes the source from whence it came so that it's guaranteed that it will never return again, all of the effects of sin will be eliminated. So it may have stung a little earlier when I said 
all of the old, even the stuff you love and enjoy, has to go. Because there's nothing in this world that's not tainted by sin. It's all got to go before the new can come. John tells you here, it's worth that loss. Everything we experience in that new world will be painless. Who, whose death are you mourning right now? What circumstance in your life brings you the most sorrow at this moment? What kind of physical pain are you suffering from? What kind of sickness has invaded your body? What kind of drugs do you despise? Because although they help you on the one hand, the, the side effects sometimes seem worse than the cure. What kind of emotional, psychological pain have you been made to endure in this world? A painless future is coming if you will be faithful through this reality. And that future, you'll be happy to know, is a certain future. John goes on in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So he describes this future for us, and then in these verses he says, it is done. And it is done even though from our perspective, because we're finite beings limited to within uh, a succession of chronological moments, this thing we call time, and so we don't see it yet, but God who stands above time says, it's just like it's already happened. That's how guaranteed this is. And you can believe these words, you can believe this world is coming because you can believe him. See, a message is only as truthful as the one who sends it, right? In philosophy, we, we have this um, fallacy that we call genetic fallacy. It's, it's, a, it's a way of saying simply, you, you cannot deny the validity of an argument simply because of its source, okay? That, however, is not the same thing as saying all sources are valid, Right? And we live in a world of all kinds of lies. I've talked to some of you about it individually. Fake news, confirmation bias, alternative facts, personal truth, my truth, your truth. It's a philosophy called postmodernism. Started as an academic discipline a little over 100 years ago in France. That the, it, it come, the, these lofty ideas, like the, the way they get expressed, is the deconstruction of truth, the death of cultural meta narratives, the demise of textual authority. And even if you don't know what all that means, basically what it comes down to when it reaches the, the, the level of popular culture is the idea that, that I don't discover truth, I create it. Right? Reality is not defined by what's around me, and I have to act in relation to that. I'm going to decide what's real, and I'm going to act on that basis. And if we haven't, already discovered how completely absurd and foolish that is, we will eventually. You can't continue a civilization on that. It's a house of cards. It's absolutely going to collapse if we, if we stay on this road. Nothing is objective. Everything you hear should be held with suspicion because it's coming from someone who wants to control you, the conspiratorial side of postmodernity. Right? A man can get pregnant the far left loony side of postmodernity. 
right? I mean, there's all of this stuff is like, it, it, it all begins in the mind where we just decide, I'm going to make crap up and just decide it's real. I mean, that's an oversimplified way of putting it, but it's really not that far from, from where our world is. And, and, and media covers that stuff from a particular angle. Can we just be honest? The angle is determined on who, which corporation is footing the bill for the particular media in question. And so how many times have I had you guys go, okay, pastor, who should I listen to? Like, what newspaper should I read? Like, what source is accurate? What, do I, what, what have I told you in response? I, yeah, I say, I, you know, ultimately, I don't know. <laughs> that's where we're at. That's, that's where we're at. I'm telling you, read everything. I, I'll suggest some things. And then I'll tell you, read this one with a grain of salt because it tilts left. Read this one with a grain of salt. It tilts right. But if you read, you kind of have a broad view of everything. But you, are you ever, listen, there is one inerrant source in the universe. One. All right. Now, here's the good news. Even living in that world, John just told us there is absolute truth that can be counted on that can be relied upon, that you can take to the bank, that you can stake your life on, that you can give your life for. This is a message you can trust. Why? Well, because it comes from someone <clears throat> who calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the language that Revelation was originally written in. I am the beginning and the end. You, you can trust me to give you the truth. Why is that? Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, that truth has a beginning and eternity, has an end. He's like, everything originated with me. Everything is eventually going to come full circle back to me. You're like, how, how do I know I can trust this? Because it's anchored in the very identity of our unchanged creator. No crisis can shake you if you grab onto this. Because even if you lose everything, you're eventually going to gain everything, and you can know that this moment is coming. This, this, this future is new. It is personal. It is painless. It is certain. But it's also conditional. Verse 7, the one who conquers, so that's a word we're going to have to unpack, right? Will have this heritage. Now, I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, something that we referred to last week. So not everyone is going to inherit this future. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, in the words of Jesus himself, we are told that most will not inherit this future. And it's not because God doesn't love them. It's not because God is unjust. It's not because Jesus has not offered them through his death and resurrection every possible avenue toward eternal life. It is because those people prefer the temp to give in to the temptations of what we've studied throughout this book. The opulence, the pleasure, the cultural favor 
the power that's offered them by this world, this preference is, is illustrated by how they conduct themselves. Those without Holy Spirit-inspired courage to persevere will reveal their cowardice by compromising their faith and participating and blessing detestable things, sacrificing human life, participating in sexual immorality, leaning into false religions, both believing and enabling lies that lead to deception and bloodshed. Paul in Galatians reminds us that th these are behaviors powered by the flesh. Galatians 5 verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. Who's going to get this spot? Who's going to get that spot? Dissensions, divisions. Can I go ahead and just kind of encapsulate all that for you? Drama. People whose whole life is like, how in the world is that exemplary of faith in an unchanging God? When your whole life is just reacting to everything. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you are headed to that future. You are. I love you, but that's where you're going. And honestly, if, that, if what I've said is true, I don't even know why you'd be offended by that. Because your life demonstrates that you don't want the future that God has described here. Heaven is pure. Heaven is righteous. Heaven is holy. If unholiness is what you want and your behavior indicates that that's what you want, then by default, you do not want your creator. And he will honor that wish when eternity comes. You don't want, if you want unholiness, you don't want the presence of God. If you don't want the presence of God, why in the devil would you want to go to heaven? Where everywhere you look, there he is. Where he permeates absolutely everything. Paul and John here are tapping into the question of desire. What is it that we want? What is it that we, we treasure? And the only other route described for us here is the one described with this word conquering. He says, to those who conquer, I will be his God and he will be my son. So how do you conquer? How do you overcome? And the answer is you do that by entering the family of God. You, you, can't, you can't work your way into this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about behavioral management, anger management. You, you, don't, you don't just turn over a new leaf or go into some behavior management program or complete 12 steps and then all of a sudden you're ready for heaven. That is not how it works. I, we got 12 steps on this campus. They're amazing. You can get sober and then you can go to hell. We want you to get sober. But, but that, that thing alone, you working your way. Here's what, you need a completely new heart. That's what scripture says. You need to be born 
again into a family that by God's grace will bring him to call you a son, a, a daughter. We've already been told this is a future with no more sea, not only no more evil, but no more origin from which evil can ever again emerge. No sin, no stain, no evil will be permitted into this new and eternal reality. So you and I either enter into this destination in absolute purity or we don't enter at all. See, this whole time we've been celebrating, yeah, no more sickness, no more tears. No more. Well, all of that is because there's no more sin. And that includes the teeniest, tiniest part of it that is in the darkest recesses of Pastor Joel's heart, even as he preaches this sermon, will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. I can't 12-step my way out of that. I can't fix my own heart. I need someone to do something for me. And the most profoundly wonderful news you will ever hear is this. God, through Jesus, perfect, pure, sinless life, substitutionary death for your sin, and bodily resurrection for your new life gives you a purity that is not your own. You can come, and you are welcome. You don't know what I've done. I don't have to know. God already knows. He sent Jesus to bleed for it. Don't run from him today. Run to him and you can enter as a conqueror. Whatever some religious jerk told you in the past means nothing. Pharisees go to hell. Whatever is in your past, you don't have to join them there. You can enter as a conqueror, not on anything you've done, but on Jesus' record of victory. He will be your God. You will be his son. You will be his daughter. You, you ever heard that phrase? I, I've heard it. Actually, I've uttered it before about seminary classmates, about, you know, that they are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And there's a sense of truth in that. People can be focused on the abstract. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Let's argue about that, really. Some of you never thought about that, and you're going to spend all week. You know what? That's a really good question. I, I didn't. They did, by the way. They did. You're, well, no, they weren't born. They were created. There's no umbilical cord. There's no, yeah, yeah. God, God got finished with them, and he went, you're done, and you're done. So there you go. There are a lot of people, I understand that even in the, some of the biggest issues in the church are caused by people who show up to every Bible study and they know scripture forward and back and they stink at loving their neighbor. Okay, I get that. That's what we're talking about. No, so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But the most heavenly minded actually, as it turns out, are of the most earthly good. When you know about this heaven and you see this future, it'll put the steel in your back to be faithful through all that stuff we've been warned about in these last 20 chapters. You will swim upstream against the forces of a culture that entices and seduces you with opulence and influence and pleasure that, that comes for, with compromise. This is the, the picture that helps you and me endure because until that moment arrives... I mean, as long as this planet spins, there's going to be crisis. From now until this moment, there's going to be crisis. Some of you know it because you're in the middle of it right now. Some of you are just coming out of it, and you're looking for some respite. 
the world seems to come out of one and just immediately enter another, like nothing I have ever seen in my entire adult life. And we're watching all this unfold. And then some of you, you're sitting there right now and you're going, I'm cool, I'm fine. Okay, okay. But you're living in a hopelessly broken world. So if you're not in it and you're not coming out of it, you're probably about to go through it. This is one of those messages for someone like you that you might not need today, but you're probably going to need it tomorrow. And here's the thing. Even when the current crisis is over, if we could solve everything that is bringing so much angst today, you bring an end to the pandemic, somehow figure out by some miracle in spite of the jerks that are in charge to end political polarization. To be, let's get all this high-level tension, all the race relations stuff we've been fighting about for the last couple of years. All that somehow just gets solved. Wouldn't that be wonderful, by the way? And yet, even if that happens, you and I are still going to live in a world where children die. We're still going to live in a world where people get AIDS and cancer. We're still going to live in a world where dictators murder their citizens. We're still going to live in a world that is full of genocide and rape and abuse of every sort and kind that happens every single day. Why would you even, why would you want to hang on to even the best of that world? Enjoy it. I'm not telling you not to enjoy it. I'm not telling you to become an ascetic. I'm not telling you to Hit yourself with a cat of nine tails on the back. I'm not, you know, beat up yourself. Stop enjoying good food and good wine. Stop enjoying. No, you enjoy those things. Just don't hold on too tightly to them because something infinitely better is coming. And the greatest hope we have to offer is that same hope removes all of our fear. Guys, there's a whole new world coming. And we've got three weeks left to get a a really good, accurate enough picture of that world to catapult us forward to be faithful into faithfulness of the one in which we now inhabit. That's my prayer for all of you, starting with those of you who have not yet genuinely put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. I hope you'll come to him today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for a picture of the end that motivates us toward faithfulness. And Father, I pray that for every man and woman and child that's before me right now. God, would you make them faithful? For those who've never received you, would you regenerate their heart? Father, would you waken them? Would you waken their souls? Would you draw them to Jesus? And Father, as we take this time to sing to you, to respond to your word, Lord, help us to do so in a way that honors you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. 
Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.